Welcome to the Anu Research Group. So much Anu produced each season. Many interesting shows just slip through the cracks and don't get the fear hearing they deserve. I'm Ian. I'm Denny. I'm Freya. And each week we get together to give one show its chance. Watch the first few episodes and discuss what we thought of it. This week, Skip B. The anime ran from October 5th, 2008 until March 29th, 2009 for a total of 25 episodes, so a fairly standard two-core season. It's based on a manga by Yoshiki Nakamura, which has been running since 2002, continually, without going on hiatus or anything. Nakamura also wrote the fairly popular shoujo manga Tokyo Crazy Paradise, which I quite enjoyed reading as well. There was also a Taiwanese live-action drama series in 2011, and Five drama CDs, which I don't know if we ever talked about drama CDs before, but they're essentially radio dramas in Japan. I'm not sure they actually air on the radio. I think they just get released on CDs and are just essentially small sections of anime or video games that are just captured for an audience and then sold again. Or they're expansions on lore characters and materials that didn't really get explored fully in the actual game slash anime slash story itself. They tend to come as like bundled extras with magazines or with manga um, episodes, just like a lot of OVA episodes do. Mm. Uh, the only one that I have somewhere around here came as a magazine extra. There is also one PS2 video game, which seems to be a fairly standard dating sim taking place after the end of the anime that never reached the West because of course it didn't. It was a PS2 dating sim, and how many of those can you remember? And several other short stories based on the property written by different authors. The anime itself was made by HAL Filmmaker, a studio I'd personally not heard of before, but when I looked it up, I went, oh, of course, it's those guys. They made Princess Tutu, which is a show I think we can all recommend. And also all of Aria, which is I think a show I think Ian can wholeheartedly recommend. It is the most wholesome thing ever created, and if you disagree, you have no soul. Yeah. In addition, they also made Bludgeoning Angel Dokura-chan, which is probably the least wholesome thing ever created. But hey, we won't fault them for that. The anime was directed by Kyoko Sayama, and on that note, Freya? Yeah, so our director this week is Kyoko Sayama. She's got a lot of things under her belt uh not that many solo direction projects but she's uh worked on storyboarding and episode direction on tons of things throughout the years and has been solidly working since the mid 90s good for her she doesn't have the same level as uh, name recognition as some other women directors like um naoko y- uh, yamada and uh sorry yamamoto but that's because they've released big movies in the last 10 years and she has a to name some things she's worked on do you remember saber marionette j i remember the name but that's about it great notable because not only did she direct it she also storyboarded more than half the episodes which is a lot of work but there you go some of the things uh i know you remember vampire night because we mentioned it last week yes it yeah. was like one of those classic shoujo things where I always remember the uniforms because yeah. I've seen the cover so many times, even though it's one of the fe- it's one of the manga I've never read. Brave 10 about eight years ago, which you know, was popular enough to get an interview on Crunchyroll about it. Uh, she didn't direct Princess Tutu, but she did direct its ending and she storyboarded about nine episodes. Uh, I think this is notable because... She later directed the second season of A Manchu under Junichi Sato, who directed Princess Tutu. So I think they oh, okay. have a good, a good relationship. Uh, also, the Princess Tutu ending is interesting because I found her website 
And the like clock theming that that ending has is also on her website. I guess I'll link it in the chat. I also want to point out, just looking at her credentials, Anime News Network also lists her email. Interesting. I'm not sure if it's active anymore. I, I mean, the, the website hasn't been updated in, since 2005, from what I can tell, and it really looks like it. It's also a Yahoo email, and I'm not sure anybody still uses Yahoo. Wow. Anyway, so I couldn't find much uh, writing about her, unfortunately, except for uh, one interview she did with uh, Crunchyroll about uh, Brave 10, where she said that although she watched plenty of anime when she was a kid, she's actually much more influenced by uh, stage performances. Mm. And she actually wanted to be a stage director when she was uh, younger. I think you could definitely see that influence in the uh, Princess Tutu episode she storyboarded. Moving on. Series composition, we have Mairi Sekijima, who is yet another person who's worked on a billion things. And um, there are a lot of uh, names in here that were familiar, I think, because we've watched them on Bad Anime Night. <laughs> so, Clamp School Detectives. I know we haven't watched that, but we've definitely talked about it, right? Clamp, so probably. Yeah. Uh, I know we watched Lost Universe. Yeah. Which I don't remember. All right, I'll just go through some of this trash right now. Um, so, Moe Can. Uh-huh. <laughs> Taboo Tattoo. That's a more recent one. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Kaze no Stigma. And it keeps rearing its head to piss Ian off. Moon Phase. So, in terms of some originals, Zegapain was something that I remember people talking about back in there. That I thought about putting on my list, and then I looked at it, and I decided, you know, never mind. And on a similar note to uh, Moon Phase, he also wrote the script for uh, Le Portrait de Petit Cosette, which we're mentioning again. I was I was planning on mentioning it later today, anyway. So oh, good. I think that's mostly Shimbo's uh, thing, but you know, whatever. All right, sorry, dude. Uh, you've worked on a lot of garbage, <laughs> which is not really your fault, but oh well. Moving on to our musical composer, we have Akifumi Tado, who is interesting because he is about 90% of his um, composition credits are for uh, children's shows slash movies. Um, so he did music for a bunch of Crayon Shin-chan, and he also did music for most of the Pikachu shorts. He's also a conductor, which is interesting. I'm sure most of them can conduct, but they don't usually get credited as a conductor. And just as a little note of interest to me, he also did the music for Bomberman 64. <laughs> All right, that's it. Man, I miss the Bomberman franchise, like, so surprisingly much, right? <laughs> <laughs> okay, so episode one, or stage one, because they are doing that, uh, is called And the Box Was Opened, which is a sort of a motif they're going to use throughout the episode. Yeah, so this anime is going to center around uh, our main character, Kyoko Mogami, who is a 16-year-old girl. So she's not in high school. She has moved to Tokyo and is working a bunch of jobs for reasons that we're going to talk about in a second. We get a little bit of an introduction to what her interest and her personality is like. Uh, at the beginning, we have a locker room scene with her and some of the other people who work at her jobs. They're chatting about the male idols that they're interested in. Well, idols, Tarentos, etc. Uh, and one of them is bragging about like the two posters they've gotten. And Kyoko didn't get her poster when with her her CD. So 
she goes off on her bike and sort of crashes into the place and demands one. So we can see already that aside from the fact that these are going to be two of the things that are going to be very strong in this anime, there's going to be references to male idols. We'll talk more about the other two main characters in a second. And we get uh, this sort of glimpse that she is a strong personality. She's not really a Genki girl uh, because she doesn't have any sort of excitement about her, but she's pretty, pretty, pretty forceful, I would say. She mentions a little bit about the backstory, about why she moved, about the places she works. She's working multiple jobs and about how, like, as a child, her dream was to become a princess which is normally where I roll my eyes and turn show off, but we agreed <laughs> to watch all three episodes, so I continued. Uh, she went to Tokyo instead of continuing with high school because she is following her love and childhood friend, Fuwa Shotaro, to help him reach his goal of becoming an idol. He was the idol on the posters they were talking about in the locker room, and she's like his biggest fan at the same time. Right. And she eventually gets home sometime around 11 o'clock. She is living with him, um, but they don't seem to have the best relationship. She's obviously very excited. She's like, here, take my pudding and so on. But he's quite dismissive of her. He doesn't seem to appreciate the fact that she's working three jobs to afford rent in this like luxury mansion. And we learn that he probably isn't seen as a rival by this guy, Ren, but on the idol ranking charts, Ren is the current top idol, and he is merely the seventh sexy. Skipping ahead a little bit, so one time after work, she tries to deliver like a pudding order. I guess I think it was pudding. Uh, I think it was just some fries and a hamburger, just like a, a Wokdonald's meal. A was Donald's. Uh, a Donald's, yes. Yeah, sorry, I think you're right. Um, and obviously, the place is surrounded by fans, and they try and use her to get in. As she like goes to deliver it, she overhears Sho talking to his manager that he really only sees her as a maid and not doesn't care for her at all. In fact, he hits on his manager quite aggressively uh, and that he's a bit frustrated because um, his dad thinks that he should marry Kyoko and take over the inn instead of becoming a male idol. So naturally, uh, Kyoko gets completely... Uh, pissed off at this she throws some food she sheds some tears a little bit my personal favorite thing she does is she, there's like these angels that fly around her she throws them at him and like we get the the box that was mentioned at the beginning we start to see it unseal and like her whole personality is like forever altered she gets forcibly ex escorted out by security and then at the end of the episode we have her like turning her back on show who has like mocked her into saying, well, you should join showbiz in order to take revenge or something. And she does the haircut to show that she has progressed as a character. How do we feel about this as a first episode? Uh, I think you're both well aware that I really like this first episode, but that's because I I really like uh, Skippy the manga, the story. And having reread like the first 40 chapters of this so far, this episode is a one-for-one one recreation of the manga. I think there's a single shot prior to the opening credits where we see her in a sleeping bag that's not in the manga. Otherwise, every single thing is just straight up from there. Most of the dialogue, like, it's it's just straight up uh, the exact same thing, which means that as this was quite a good first chapter, it's also quite a good first episode. I like Kyoko as a character because... 
whereas a lot of shoujo manga focus on like high school romance or uh, and heart fluttering feelings about other people it's very refreshing to have a heroine whose main goal at least initially is just revenge and i'm going to destroy you <laughs> like it, it's it's interesting that you use the phrase refreshing to talk about some uh, um, and manga about spite <laughs> <laughs> I just think she's a very fun character with um, all of her demons because Ian mentioned the angels and demons. So when we see the box and when she overhears a show talking like shit about her, telling she's a maid and all that stuff, we see like a little demon form of him slowly unlocking them. Then all her resentment, her malice, her hatred, all the feelings she's repressed over all these years to essentially cater to him, be his slave, burst free and take control. And she's essentially realized that she picks up all her good feelings and throws them in the face. And I am very much like one of my favorite things about this show is that these wacky powers, they're all real in universe. Other people see show being choked by the demons. They can't see the demons themselves, but they do see him being choked. They react to something happening, though they can't tell what, which I, I think is quite funny because usually these would just be the character's emotions and inner feelings represented visually for the audience. But the fact that they're able to physically interact with the characters in universe, I think, is a, a really interesting way to go with it. Yeah, it's a fun way to do those uh, kind of things. Yeah, I, I think we can. We'll be we'll be talking about bit that about that a bit more in the next few episodes. Um, one thing that really hit me was just how overboard they went with the seals unlocking metaphor in this episode. Mm. It was there was no subtlety in it whatsoever. In <laughs> fact, there's there's very little subtlety in this show. It's it, it's nice for her to carry her emotions on her sleeve, really. Like she does a lot of repressing later on, especially towards her childhood. That we won't see a lot of that during those first three episodes. But generally, Kyoko is a person who carries her emotions on her sleeve. She's either very very cheerful and upbeat, or she goes into uh, extreme demon Dragon Ball Z mode, where she's gonna take her vengeance and curse you to death, which we'll see in episode two. I, I personally always have a soft spot for characters that are essentially insane or that don't behave by um, normal logic, like the sleeping monster type character. I do have a soft spot for that. And I think Kyoko is one of those where when she goes, when she wants something done, she goes to the ends of the earth to get it done. She's a steamroller. And Futuro, he's a massive douche. And that's exactly what, what you want him to be because he's her obstacle. He, at the same time, he's her goal. Though I, I am personally unhappy towards what happens with him later when they essentially try to, oh no, this was all just teasing and years of emotional neglect and abuse are essentially just ways of him not knowing how to treat her properly. And, but now that she's successful and uh, doing what she likes, now he wants her. <sighs> and that's not very good, though. That, that won't show up very much in these first three episodes. Besides that, visually, there aren't really that many standout moments, though I am quite fond of a lot of the Pokemon trainer backgrounds that occasionally show up. Yeah. When uh, characters do, like, big, exaggerated throwing motions and stuff, or when they have, like, dramatic moments. I, I called this a shoujo manga, but it's primarily a comedy manga uh, with, with yeah. funny antics and stuff and exaggerated character beats. And I, I think it works quite well. I would primarily describe this as a comedy. Yeah. What did you think about the episode, Freya? I mean, it, it was okay. You already said all the uh, good things about it. and Okay. So, episode one, 
establishes the paper thin premise. <laughs> Episode two, Feast of Horror. Well, just know that she has revolved to get into show business. This is where we see her first steps towards acting on that. She's given up, I think, at least one of her jobs and has moved in with the people who own one of the restaurants she works at. Dariyama. There's a lot of the rumors in these first few chapters and episodes, which is great. Yeah. After being tormented by Chibi Show as a like a inner monologue type deal, she decides that, well, the agency she really needs to join is LME because they're the major competitor to Show's agency and screw him by going to a competitor. So if you want to get into LME, well, obviously the thing you do is you go to the, pe- the, pe- the people at the reception desk and ask for a meeting with the highest uh, authority in the station, which is not what happens. But a manager at the company, Sawara, does overhear her and chats with her a little bit about, oh, well, why do you want to do such and such? And it, ter- and it transpires that obviously she's never really had any desire to be a singer or a talent or an actor or anything like that. So he's just like, ah, oh, you're just a crazy fan. Get the hell out of here. You're just you're just trying to get closer to Ren. And so you need to prove that you are committed. And so she does this first by sitting outside in like the Caesar position, uh, kneeling in front of it until the end of the night, then harassing people as they leave out of the side door at night. And then of course, after that, she follows him home on the bike, and she pesters him at his house by keeping him up all night, etc., etc. For four days. He spends four days essentially cursing Sawara-san and haunting him until he finally surrenders. And so he's like, okay, okay, fair enough. I need my sleep. You can you can audition. So we should talk a bit about Ren for a second. Ren isn't really going to appear a ton in these first three episodes, which is a bit frustrating. He's, he's going to be very important to the manga going forward. He's basically the second main character, like the two primary main... You called, I think you called Fuva Show uh, one of the main characters. He's honestly more of a side character. He's the main rival in the love, in the love aspect of the show, but he's more of a side character. Like, it's really Kyoko and Tsuruga and, and Ren who are, who are constantly in the show and the manga. Right. But uh, he was there when she was trying to get an audition the first time, and he's there mm-hmm. now, and he doesn't think very highly of her motivation for coming into show business. Uh, and he gives her, like, the, it's useless to join LME. Your guts can only take you so far. I think at one point he's very dismissive to show and says, well, like, you could reach that level without even being, like, a singer or something. Because <laughs> he has no idea who show is, basically. Yeah, so at this point, pretty much all we get to see of him is as the aloof star of an agency who is more of like an aspiration than a character at this point. So move to the set piece of the episode, which is the audition. And it's a talent competition, so to speak. You have to exhibit some sort of talent that you would do uh, if you were on like a, one of these Japanese variety shows. One of the characters who is going to be quite important is number 46, Kanai. And her talent is that she essentially memorizes a book just by flicking through it, which, I mean, it's pretty impressive if that's what actually happened. I mean, memorizing any book is pretty impressive. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, like, challenging the, the people uh, who were on the panel to be to, like, well, what's on page 43, line 12? 
Whereas we sort of, we get a montage scroll of um, the characters, uh, the the other auditionees doing their talents, whether that yeah, they really don't matter, juggling or dancing or singing or whatever. And we end the episode with uh, Kyoko coming on stage with a knife and a radish, uh, and looking quite menacing, to be honest. Uh, and it's like, <gasps> Freya, what, what what do we think of episode two? It was all right. <laughs> it was mostly it was mostly Kyoko demonstrating more of Kyoko's uh, intensity and uh, determination, I guess, and also introducing some of the supporting characters and uh, Ren, who is also an asshole. Is he? Yes, in this episode, he's a massive asshole. He's just an asshole in like the detached. I'm yeah. so far above you way. Yeah, yeah. I, I use the word aloof to describe. Him. Yes, that's much mm-hmm. better. It's so yeah. The the characters that we've really learned a bit about this this episode were Kyoko Sawara, who I assume becomes her manager later on. Uh, no, no, he's he's really not that important in the grand scheme of things. He appears occasionally, but okay. he's not her manager. And uh... okay, because oh. I felt really because he felt really sorry for him because he's just been yeah. for <laughs> for an episode. Mm. Uh, Ren, can I? And actually, a girl, um, the little girl who we didn't mention. Oh yes, Maria. So yeah, um, when they're in backstage uh, preparing, Kyoko is actually doing like needlework, and everyone's all like, "What are you, a housewife? This is a life or death battle." <laughs> to be fair, she is making a voodoo doll to curse people in this life or death battle, which is great. Yes. And with Maria, you, you, I think you mentioned in when we're discussing this that she's the granddaughter of like the station head. Yes, though we don't know that of LME of the president of LME, though we don't learn that during those three episodes. And but we do learn that she's that she is, although she definitely appears to be a child, she seems to be already quite sophisticated yes. as a media personality. She's like very manipulative in how she cries and who she goes forward to. And I think she was actually, although I don't think she needed to audition, I think she was kind of there just to like scope the people out, kind of. Yeah. I I think she, if I remember correctly, she just because she's the president's granddaughter, she gets to do whatever the hell she wants. So here she was just checking out the people, and then um, she essentially canamies through into uh, Kyoko, and then she starts crying, and then um, Kyoko's essentially like she doesn't really hit her, but she just like a, she she stretches her face as you would do to children sometimes, and she's like. Not every problem is going to be solved by crying. Do you really think crying is going to make these th- make things better? She's really harsh <laughs> to her, which is actually why Maria really likes her later on. But because <laughs> she treats her not like a little child, but like a like a person. The important thing, right, about Kyoko at this stage is how different she is in personality and skills and expectations from everyone else who is applying mm. for the same job. Yeah. 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 Another character we didn't actually mention, I think, is the president himself. Though he's, his role in this episode is very small, he is one of the major recurring president, and I like him a lot because he's uh, he's the weird rich character who goes around and has like a, uh, an entire entourage and dance troupe with him every time he appears. I think I would get annoyed with him if he showed up much more than he currently does. I mean, he shows up like once every uh, every arc. He shows up one or two times. Unless the arc majorly involves him, and he he does have more char- a lot more characterization than 
just being the weird billionaire. Like he genuinely worries about Ren and Kyoko. He has his relationship with his granddaughter. Like he is really not that annoying of a character as he initially seems through this gimmicky introduction, though it is a recurring thing with him. Yeah, it definitely feels like a, a something you put, you, like a personality you cultivate, perhaps to try and yeah. like, like disarm people and be like, oh well, he's just a fucking idiot, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But we we can't really talk much more about the addition because most of that happens in episode three, so we should move on to that, and then we'll get back to stuff that happens in episode two as well. Okay, so episode three is the emotion she lacks. Hint: it's love. <laughs> <sighs> we get the reveal, which is that, well, she had the knife and the radish she is going to fashion into some kind of rose uh, by peeling it extremely thinly and then arranging it. Uh, it's an art called uh, Katsuramuki. Uh, and everyone's so impressed because <gasps> this is a difficult skill to master. Only master chefs can do it. And there's a stupid flashback about how she about how she learned it as part of like her plan not to be a burden on Sho's parents, which leads me question, uh, which um, give, raises questions for me, but come back to that. She doesn't quite manage a rose. She manages a cabbage. <laughs> but, I mean, still pretty impressive, to be honest. I mean, it's not something you see every every day in a, in a talent show, I assume. Yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting. So she manages to make it through the first stage of the audition, uh, as does uh, Kanai. And Kanai takes this opportunity to like warn her that ah, this is just the true beginning of the audition now. You have passed the tutorial. <laughs> yeah, and it's just like, well, they're gonna get bored with you as a spectacle soon enough, and you need to have the real uh skills that they're after. So for the next task, it's the sort of acting competition. They have all of them line up in a row and pass a phone from one another and there is someone on the phone who gives them their prompt and they have to react to it in a natural way. And it, I mean, it isn't clear to us what is the what the prompt is, but everyone who uh, does it seems to be like, oh, I'm so happy. It's it's so wonderful. And can I uh, shows off her talent by like crying on demand as she's like, I am so happy. And it's like, oh, she can cry. And then when it comes to Kyoko, at the, who is the last in the sequence, she we learn that the phrases that are being used is it's like meant as like an ex-boyfriend who is like, oh, I understand that you were the one who was following me all along and I didn't realize at the time and I'm such a fool and I'm so happy that you could be in my life. And this reminds her a lot of the things that Sho has been doing to her. And instead of acting out happiness, she acts out rage. It's the, like, I'm so happy. Psych. Smash the phone. <laughs> uh, she does actually uh, smash the phone. And like the description is that like she gives off a strong murderous aura. Everyone else is terrified, to be quite frankly, of her. The president's crying. Yes. He's very sad. And then we learn that she doesn't. She that certain people have passed the audition. Uh, like there's two sets of numbers. Here's the numbers that have failed. Here's the numbers that have passed. And she is not on this sheet at all. Her number sixty one is not on. And Kana is like, oh, 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 I told you that you weren't gonna make it. See you, loser. We're never gonna see each other again. 
we're totally not going to be best friends in a few chapters' time. And she's quite concerned about this. She uh, goes to harass Sawara about it, and Sawara's like, "Well, while the while the president and the uh, our chief actor dude were very impressed by your performance, you were missing love. Like how, like as like a talent, you must always love your audience." And Kyoko's like, oh, I see. Like, but how is it possible to love people that you've never met? And she actually seems to take this on, on board quite well. And she and she goes away, uh, confusing Sawar, who assumed that she was going to fight harder than she did. Um, she goes back to her her house to mope. And then her boss at the Dharma Dharma Ya is pretty pissed off. It's just like, I lent you my treasured knife and you're going to give up. Yeah, because she decides to get a, a normal day job and give up trying to enter entertainment. Yeah. Meanwhile, the president of LME is like meeting with Sawara and his uh, his granddaughter. And it's just like, I have some great plans for this one. <laughs> uh, and just like, and then Sawara's like, yes, uh, like she's not the kind of person to give up after one setback. And it's just like, well, I guess the president changed his mind. <laughs> So yeah, this is the uh, necessary setback. I think the only thing you skipped, though, it's it's not going to be important for during those during the three episodes. But we also see that she carries a little stone around with her um, that she has since childhood, and it's like a really important emotional anchor for her. And it's it's still a recurring thing in like chapter two hundred and eighty, which is the latest chapter. Like it, it's a really important stone that comes up constantly, and the character who gave it to her, the fairy prince Corn. Yes, cornstone. Um, that's that's episode three. Okay, so I really like the use of backgrounds in the phone scene, where it like cycles from it being the sort of purple miasma when initially when she's like got all the bubbling anger inside while she's listening to it, and then when she pretends to be all happy and. Uh, uh, polite, it goes all like nice and shiny and orange, and then when she gets angry, it's like the red speed lines in the background mm-hmm. when she smashes it. I would actually describe the animation style as very manga. <laughs> uh, yes. Like, I mean, this is the sort of thing we get away with a lot more in comedy, is like, there's a lot of like, like, it's it's actually quite sparsely animated in, in many senses. It's a lot of like reaction shots, long holds, and abstract backgrounds that represent like your emotional surroundings. Or Which is why I enjoy the fact that what in another comedy show would be like non sequitur emotional jokes that don't really affect the real world. Kyoko's inner demons are real and are visible to other, uh, are affecting yes. other people. Later on in the manga, there's even a character who can see the demons and manages to capture one of them. But one thing I'd like to bring up, because maybe this will enlighten you a little bit as to the nature of the, um, the story, what kind of story this is. According to the author, what do you think the two prevalent themes of this story are? Like you, you uh, I mean, obviously the answer isn't revenge because that would be too obvious. <laughs> no, nope. um, I feel like it must be about like I want to say emotional resilience slash independence, being able to like function on your own without um, someone yeah. else. I was going to say moving on, but uh, but I already I already know that's not really true. <laughs> the prevalent themes of the story, according to the author, are love and battles. <laughs> so it's essentially a battle well, manga. Presumably by battles, she means interpersonal battles. Yes, yes. Of course. Obviously. Emotional battles. I do think that if you dropped her into a shonen fighting manga, she would do very well. 
Yes. I mean, I, I, she has a total fighting character moveset. She has her she has her demons she can summon. She has her baseball throwing skills that we see at several points during the episodes. And her finisher is like she she attains half angel, half demon form, and then she picks up all the demons and throws them at the enemy. And they they inflict like a permanent debuff on them. <laughs> but I, I, I think we can all agree that she's the, like the real star and draw of this show. Certainly. The other characters definitely haven't had enough screen time to really evolve. Yeah. Um, so uh, Kyoko Mogami is voiced by Marina Inoue. So I think people who are familiar with her probably would recognize her either as like Armin or Lurk in Attack on Titan or Yoko Lipner from Teng and Topa Gurren Lagann. But because we mentioned it earlier, uh, she is Cosette de Avernier, or however that French name is pronounced, in uh, the Portrait de Petit Cosette, which we're still going to watch one of these days. <laughs> yep, and Shibuya keeps getting her back for other things. But the important, the, the nice thing about there about that in particular is that she had to win like an audition against like thousands of other people to win that, because it was an open edition. She's uh, really good as the two characters in the other two Shaft anime she's in. She's in more than just two, but there's ones off the top of my head. Like uh, she's what's Ray's uh, adoptive sister called in uh, Sangatsu? Kyoko Koda. Yes, I think that character's somewhat misserved by the story, but she's really good at uh, portraying her um, mm. lack of stability, I guess. And she's really good as the character in uh, Monogatari. Uh, mostly because she tears the shit out of Araki verbally all the time. <laughs> Comedic timing is interesting in anime because the dubbing process happens afterwards. Yes. But it's coming across very well in this, and I'm quite happy with it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. her performance definitely has the, the range necessary to portray Kyoko because she is two very uh, different styles. She's either the happy-go-lucky, upbeat princess Kyoko, or she's the angry demon Kyoko. Um, both require very different performances. Or, or she, the depressed Kyoko. Or, or the depressed Kyoko, though that, that's a rarer appearance. Mm. Now, that's only when the manga tries to get serious. An interesting fact about this is that Kyoko's dark side is based on the manga's personal experiences in working to a prior job. So I'm imagining it's like all the retail jobs she's worked <laughs> and dealing with the customers. And she talks in interviews about how she had to be cautious in the way she expressed this darkness because it would have been too extreme to fully express it. So her dark side needed to be balanced for shoujo readers with her much brighter and optimistic side. I wonder if it would be more interesting if she uh, didn't do that. Yeah, I, I definitely don't think it would have had the commercial uh, appeal and success it has now if it had just been a straight-up dark story. Because if we were to take this story seriously, it's about a 16-year-old girl who ran away from home to follow the, the one guy she's always loved, only to find out that he sees her as nothing but a maid, then abandons her. So she throws away everything in her life to get revenge. Taking that at face value, it's a pretty dark story. Mm. One of the interesting things about her is, if we go back to the start, she said, well, it's my dream to become a princess. She doesn't really act like a princess, let's be real. Well, um, which is good because it would be a like none of this would work. But this comes across just in how she carries her body. Like if we go back to the end of the first episode when she's had the transformation, she's got her uh purse like swung over her back like she's like a delinquent would hold a baseball bat. <laughs> yes. 
Um, like we we do actually get a lot more of Princess Kyoko. I'd say the reason this dark side is prevalent during these initial episodes is because it's a fairly recent event at that point. So she's still very, very angry constantly. Later on, uh, the further we move away from the start, especially when she becomes good friends with Kanami, we see a lot more of a princess side. Like Her name is Kyoko uh, as an agency uh, when she works for the agency, but that's only because her names of Princess uh, Odette uh, were rejected by the agency. That was her initial <laughs> name as an actor she wanted to have. And every time she gets like makeup put on, she's like incredibly happy and she doesn't want to get rid of it. Like there's all these things she gave up on uh, during these few during these last few months, as we what we're assuming, which to take care of show that, that she really desires later on, and that make her really happy, and that's how we get more Princess Kyoko. But besides the voice acting, I also think the animation does a, a pretty good job at conveying the comedy itself. Like I think Freya, you mentioned that it's nothing that special most of the time. Like it's fairly, or was it Ian? It was fairly little. It's animated fairly um... conservatively. Yes, conservatively, except when they're doing the exaggerated comedy scene. It always gets imbued with a much more frantic sense of energy whenever we get the demons or Kyoko's inner monologues and stuff. It's a very classic. Well, in twenty twenty, would be classic. But I guess like when I, when people were reading this, like around two thousand eight, you know, when I I was able to pay attention to anime and manga, um, like it was very much just in the air. It's just like, yeah, this is how it works. There's chippy everywhere. Uh, uh, but these days, it like it feels kind of refreshing when you go back and you're like, yeah, this is how it felt like. And I don't mind where I don't mind where anime has went to for the most part. But it, it feels nice to go back. Hmm. It's also interesting that the the other main visual well the other main visual gimmicks uh, focus around Kyoko pretty much entirely because I don't th think they do the um, quote unquote Pokemon backgrounds except when uh, except around her. They did them once around Sawara, but it was still okay. in reaction to her. Yeah, the visual gimmick of the demons is quite fun, but I think that's from the manga, isn't it? Yes, like as I've said, every single I've not talked about the differences between the manga and anime at all because there are none. <laughs> like you can just read the manga. As Ian was giving his description earlier, I was I had the chapter one of the manga up next to it uh, on the screen, and I was just scrolling down. And every single beat, it's beat, 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 joke, joke, joke. It's one hundred percent straight up copied. Just to skip ahead, I would recommend this show, but I would recommend you just read the manga because it's the exact same thing, and you'll get through it quicker. And also, it goes much, much, much further. Oh, hey, that's the second week in a row we've said that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so uh, for sound design, you sort of expect for a comedy there'd be um, more silly sound effects. There weren't that many. One of the more interesting choices, though it's definitely not the only show to do this, whenever anyone's having an internal um, monologue with themselves, and in flashbacks too, they'll put this uh, filter on the... Um, voice that makes it sound like either they're speaking through something or they're in a very small room and the microphone is very close to their uh, face. Uh, speaking of uh, like flashbacks, Ian, you mentioned uh, you were questioning something about Kyoko's uh, radish peeling skills and Sho's parents. Oh, right. It was just that it wasn't clear to me if she actually had parents because she seemed to have had a very co cozy relationship with Sho's parents. And they're like, because like she seems to hang out, hang out at their in and help out there the real can yeah 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 she does she does she has a single mother who 
would be very interesting to talk about if she wasn't like 30 volumes, if she didn't only come in like 30 volumes later. Though throughout like even these first two chapters, we see that her mother was very uh, neglectful yeah. towards Kyoko, and she was essentially raised by Sho's parents. So you do see her mum in that one flashback where she's crying as a kid, and you see the um, older woman walking away from her, whose face is concealed. Uh, another thing that I actually wanted to mention, sorry, I should have mentioned this during the visual side, but I forgot about it. One of the recurring visual things they do is they have arrows appear on screen leading to text boxes to explain things. And that's also a fairly common thing in the manga, but it's it's like a very classic thing, as Ian said. It, it reminds me of um, Oran Host Club, where they also occasionally did that. But going back to sound, how did you guys feel about uh, the musical choices in the show? You know the scene where her, quote-unquote, her box gets opened in the first episode? Yes. Uh, the musical choice for that was sort of uh, slow, dramatic, rising strings, mm. which is a little at odds with the... Uh, uh, later more comedic tone of the, the visuals. Personally, what stood out to me was there were several times where the music felt like it could have been in, like an initial D Eurobeat thing. But other than that, yeah, it's also mostly just fine. I know saying something's fine is really bad on a podcast because the listeners cannot take absolutely nothing away from it's fine. What I'll say is it didn't do anything for me. It also didn't, I didn't think it was bad. I didn't notice it in either a good way or a bad way. <laughs> what I did notice, though, was the, the cameos by both Harry Potter and Avril Lavigne in this anime. <laughs> Avril Lavigne, very popular in Japan, at least uh, at least she was about 10 years ago. Mm, which I did not know. Did an ending song for one of the One Piece movies, I think. Really? Huh? Yes. Or at least they used one of her songs. I don't know if she did it specifically for that. So, given that we've gone on to music, which we then went off <laughs> on a tangent about. Uh, opening, ending. Look, please, if anybody's listening, please send us emails. We really need recommendations. We can't figure this out, so please, you do. <laughs> <laughs> this is staying in. Okay, yeah. Uh, endings and openings. Ian. Okay, good. Uh, so the opening is by, is Dreamstar by The Generous which is an interesting name for your band, to say the least. They're like a vocal, vocal plus guitar duo. This is their only anime credit. They did do both of the openings for this. It was pretty standard J-Rock. Because we have the relatively standard J-Rock, along with the sort of like the running towards the future visuals. If, if like You could make a bingo card about like the uh, <laughs> pan to the sky, lie on the grass, run through the forest. The bit that I do like is the the cornstone thing uh, that she has in her hands. It turns into a bird, which she then follows through the rest of the opening. As we said, we'll you'll see a bit more of her transformation as she becomes more of a a talent slash celebrity later on, and that sort of comes across as she runs across the road and she has the stumble, and then the Aikatsu transformation sequence where she gradually gets from her normal clothes to eventually like a princess outfit. And she does eventually catch up with the bird at the end. There's a fun bit where she sees, I forget whether it's Ren or Show at one point, where she like runs past them and it just turns into the, she's wearing a construction uniform and smacking him with a hammer. Yeah, going much more into the comedic stylings of the show. Like, I, I have to say, I quite like this opening. It It is very generic, as Ian has said, but for some reason, and I 
can't really put a finger on it. It evokes a very nostalgic feeling in me. Maybe it is just because it is that 2008 feeling of like very inoffensive J-Rock with running towards the future visuals, reminding me of when I had a sense of hope and dreams. But um, that was even she even achieves her quote unquote dream at the end of the opening because she's on the uh, billboard and oh, yeah, yeah. looking up at it. Even better is that she's actually got quite a mean look when she's looking down at the billboard, yes. like kind of the like disdainful model look, which I really fits with her personality. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, that, that is one of the odd things I do think about the show. It comes with the premise and it's a necessity. You can't have the show without it. But just the fact that every single thing about them is like oh well you can't do love and you can't do like nice emotions it's not like there isn't this huge market for people who are able to per- to portray anger or hatred and fury really well because she would ace all of those roles yeah and she does so later on uh, like calm and collected and cool and the love market is saturated the ending i have much less to say about it it's some it's a nice uh, hip hop trio uh, called tubaka uh, with their song Namida, which is I actually kind of like this song. I like I, I my head was going up and down to it. I was like, yeah. yeah. Visually, it's not very impressive. Um, it's a sad walk ending. But the thing that is nice about it is the like sort of vaporwave lava lamp styling that they went, which is the only coloring. It's interesting in that sense, but it's like musically, I appreciated this one more. But whatever, right? I also didn't think it was that interesting. They put a weird filter over it. That That's probably the most standout thing about it. And with that, I think we should then move on to this week's verdicts. So, Ian, how many inner demons would you give this show? That's actually a tremendously good question. <laughs> <laughs> like, shit. I'm thinking three and a half. I mean, I, I was I was pleasantly surprised by this show. It managed to relatively succeed on the comedy front. It was fine. Yeah, three and a half. How about you, Freya? Um, so my main appreciation for this show is the main character, which, I mean, is good because it's mostly focused around her. She's very entertaining. Outside of that, it's mostly just okay. And some of the side characters were actively irritating and not in a good way. Show, I think I would have preferred if his stuff was played a little more seriously, but it probably wouldn't work with the rest of the show. Yeah, because they still need him to be somewhat likable so fans can ship them together. Yeah, so that really doesn't work because he's a massive twat. But Kyoko is really good, so three to three and a half. As for my part, I definitely think I am this show's biggest fan because... As usual, I have read the manga. I have been reading it for the last seven years, and I will read it until it is eventually complete. And while it is not my absolute favorite shoujo manga, that might go maybe to Last Game or Kawaii no Hito or Ferrari Girl. It is definitely up there within like the top five shoujo manga uh, that I've read, like so yeah, I, I think I think three point five is a very good place for this show, because while the comedy worked, the animation worked, it still wasn't anything extraordinary. It just did well with the material it had. It's also just a very straightforward adaptation, so it didn't really take any risks or try anything new. It just took the page and colored it in essentially, which is why I don't think it deserves any like big points on oh man this is an adaptation you totally need to see 
if you're at all interested in this, as I've said, just go and read the manga because it goes much further and it is the superior way to consume this piece of media. So our verdicts are rendered. The average is about 3.4. Denny, do you have any facts for us about the show? Um, well, I've got two smaller facts. One, that this is one of the shows that received an English dub much later on through a Kickstarter campaign in 2016. And I just thought it was worth mentioning because this is the thing we've been seeing a lot more during recent years where older shows that had a dedicated fan base but weren't popular enough to receive English dubs have gone to Kickstarter. The second fact uh, stems from the manga. And I was actually surprised when I watched episode three because during that episode, the president is reading Kyoko's profile and it tells us a little bit more about her. It also tells us her favorite word, which is vengeance. However, in the manga, her favorite word is not vengeance. It is intransigence. Intransigence. You know what that means? Yeah, it means not uh, listening to what people tell you. Yeah, refusal to compromise or change one's views. I did not know that, but I do think it is quite appropriate for that to be her favorite word. So after that, what will we be watching next week, Freya? Next week, we will be watching number six. Okay. Not something I remember hearing about, but... Nothing new there, right? Eh? Yeah, that's what you're here for, Freya. You're here to suggest all the shows we've never heard of. I'm here for the Shonen Trash, and Ian's here for the elitist and middle ground stuff. <laughs> I have shows that people have heard of on here. That's I've a heard, lie, and you know it. I've heard of number six, but I'm also an elite. So. <laughs> people have heard of Liz and the Bluebird, because it's recent. <laughs> and it's a movie. We are the Anime Research Group, a weekly podcast coming out every Thursday, more or less. Less so on the less side, though we should be coming out more in the future. If you'd like to tell us what you thought of the episode, please do so. We desperately need feedback. We crave your feedback. Or suggest something for future episodes. You can follow us on Twitter at research underscore anime or drop us an email at researchanime at gmail.com. Thank you. Oh, yes, Amina, sorry.